Hey, welcome to Manalyzing. This is where men talk about the kind of stuff that men don't talk about. Put your hard hat on, get ready for a ride. Here we go. Let's get the uh, the guys to just know a little bit about you, and uh, then we're going to go dark. No, yeah, I mean, I love that. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you're uh, you're the ripe old age of twenty uh, something. Twenty five. Yeah. Twenty five. Yeah. And tell tell everybody how we met. Ooh. So we actually met. It was a, it was fantastic. So we met just at the Dirty Dove corporate franchise training. Uh huh. That. Um, I don't know. I guess for me, it was just you just seemed like a super kind, sweet guy. When you first walked in, I was like, who is this guy? And then I saw you getting close to like your wife. And then I was like, oh, they're all in like probably the same group. Uh-huh. But I think what what really like just clicked was just being able to talk with you and how easy it was to talk to you and how knowledgeable you were in just different areas of your life and how you were just a very straightforward person. Uh-huh. For me, I don't like it when people try and beat around the bush. Uh-huh. Uh, same with me. Like I'm very much a straight shooter, and I love it when I meet people who just are confident in who they are and who will also say it as it is, as well. Yeah, my daughter was dying. She <laughs> is. Uh, <laughs> of course, it's your job when you're a dad to uh, to embarrass your kids. And we're we're going into this venture. Uh-huh. Uh, you and I are both Dirty Dough franchisees. Yep. And uh, and so. I think it's a rule that if I say anything, then it embarrasses her. <laughs> that means you're doing a good job. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, and my philosophy uh, in business mm-hmm. is that if you can get somebody to complain, that's fabulous. Yeah. Because uh, what I learned in the research is that out of if 25 people have a bad experience, mm-hmm. one of them will tell you if you're lucky. Yeah. And so that one guy is a gold mine, or one woman, mm-hmm. because he can tell you how to improve your business, how to improve your bottom line, but only if you let him. Right. So you could walk away from an experience and say, man, that guy was a jerk. Or you could walk away from the experience and say, man, I'm glad I got that information today. 100%. So I tried to be both. I tried to be the jerk and the one who helped them to... Uh, <laughs> And that's, I think, another thing that's incredible about you is that you have found the perfect balance because typically what I run into, especially at my age, still people don't want to take me seriously. They look at me and they're like, oh, this kid looks like he's 21. People think that I'm still in high school sometimes. And I'm like, no, I'm 25. And, you know, they typically won't take me seriously because of that. But what I like about you is that you've found that balance because typically those people who don't take me seriously, they're either really, really big jerks for lack of a better word Uh or they just like you said they don't say anything they're kind but they don't say anything to help the business itself to help the business and let's uh talk about the business what is the business for you with dirty dough uh what what are your businesses presently (laughs) yeah so right now um so i guess to back up a little bit so i did five years of door-to-door pest and solar and that's kind of what helped me be able to um i guess gain the, the capital for lack of a better term, for all these different things. So I started off in real estate um, because I just, I had a lot of people I worked with that that's what they invested in. And there was a guy that I knew where I used to work and he had over a hundred rental properties as a 30 something year old. And that to me was like, you know what? I want to be like that guy because real estate just made sense. Uh-huh. Um, I have my real estate license, but I don't use it for Like I don't advertise myself. I just use it to help buy properties. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what I got into at first while doing the door-to-door pest and solar. Got rental properties, um, just individual, and then just barely I invested into an apartment complex over in Texas with the help of a couple of friends. So Uh I did that, and then I also um, just started looking at other things to invest in, the Top Golf in – the one that's built, getting built up in Vineyard, I have 5% in that. So not too much, but nice. just, just another investment there. I was driving past that <laughs> yesterday, and that is a nice facility. It is super nice. I think I think at the end, it was like about 20, 25 million, uh-huh. I think was the overall cost to build all that. Dang. So And it's right next to the Dirty Dough, which is fantastic. So it's I can just take clients to to go golf, and then we'll go get cookies right afterwards. <laughs> too bad you don't own that, that facility. I know, too bad I don't own, own that one. I would have been great. <laughs> 
<laughs> but yes, I just got into it really young at the age of 20 when I, um, I came home from serving an LDS mission in Dallas, Texas and came home and just started, um, yeah, just doing sales and that helped me get those properties until eventually, um, just fairly recently this past year, I actually transitioned over to becoming an insurance broker for businesses. Uh-huh. What I love about that job is it's a lot more relaxed. I feel like it's my first real job is what I call it. And that allows me to be able to connect with businesses because I work specifically with businesses to help give their employees the, um, their health insurance. Right. So, so that's what you're, you're a health insurance agent. Mm-hmm. for businesses correct as well as handling their commercial lines too so like general liability and workers comp etc. okay so i'm going to try and see if i've got this list <laughs> in in my head you've got <laughs> you've got the uh the insurance agency you've got the apartments in houston or was it dallas D- uh, dallas area dallas grand prairie You've got uh, the five percent share of a billion dollars in uh in the uh top <laughs> golf <laughs> What else have you got cooking? Um, let's see what else. Uh, the dirty dough. The dirty doughs, obviously. Uh huh. Um, I'm gonna be, yeah, I'm gonna be taking over the current one that's in Pleasant Grove, and then I'm gonna be adding a few more in California in the San Diego area. Reason why I chose San Diego is I love the beach. I've always been, I guess, a beach bum at heart. Uh-huh. All my cousins grew up in in San Diego, so uh-huh. I'm really familiar with that area because of them. And I just love the water. I love hearing it. I love seeing it. It just brings sort of a calming presence. Yeah, I, I totally get that. We're we're in a studio in my home with a view of some water. Oh, yeah. And that that doesn't feel bad. Best, in my opinion, best view in Utah. Seriously. Yeah. Mm. I've, uh, I've thought so, perhaps, too. If you ever sell your home, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> so at 25, you have accomplished... I'm going to say more than I will in uh, three lifetimes. Oh, that's... And I am wondering, and I think a thousand guys who are listening are wondering, how the heck? Um, because you have you have no disadvantages, no problems, right? Yeah, there, there's nothing working <laughs> against you. I mean, it's interesting that you bring that up because I've always felt that I've had everything working against me. Right. Tell me about that. Tell me everything about everything working against Yeah, you. I mean, this is, is this where we get dark? Is that what? <laughs> uh, if it goes dark, then this is where we get dark. We'll, we'll yeah. get darker. <laughs> yeah, so for me, again, so I immigrated from Peru when I was about two years old with uh-huh. my sister and my parents. Uh-huh. We came here the right way, did it legally, did it, complete, like I said, completely the right way. It took us 15 years to finally become U.S. citizens. Oh, I am strongly resisting the urge to have you talk about the wrong way, but we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll not do that today. I'm very, yeah, it's like, long story short, advocate for doing it the right way. Um, it works. It just takes a while. But mm-hmm. you save so much stress and headache and hardship doing it that way. Oh, I bet. But, so yeah, immigrated here, um, grew up in Springville, Utah. Okay. Growing up in Springville, Utah, it was very much uh, very heavily populated, not only LDS, but also just very, I guess, like white community, lots of farmers. Uh Um, It isn't what it is today. Like the house that I grew up in, behind me was a huge farmland. And now there's just homes and homes to where you can't even see the mountains anymore, which is really sad because I love that home um, growing up. Didn't necessarily love growing up in Springville. I would say no. Uh-huh. The reason why, and I guess this is where to answer your question of opposition. So growing up, I f- was pretty much the only Latino um, uh-huh. in my school. If there was other ones, I must have missed them. But elementary school, junior high, um, I was pretty much the only kindergarten. I was the only Latino. And then when I went into high school, that's when I started to see a couple more Latinos. The only sad part was that... The stereotype for the Latinos in Springville High School were the ones that would typically sneak out of class, go smoke weed, do drugs, and not accomplish anything. Uh-huh. So the second I went into Springville High School, I felt like 99% of my professors and teachers there kind of saw that as well. They kind of saw me as, all right, this is just another Latino that's just going to, you know, he's just going to ditch class and he's going to just smoke weed outside the school. Um, because historically, that's what it had been. Um, so I remember again, completely growing up, all my friends were just white or Navajo <laughs> or Navajo, uh-huh. which was funny. Cause one of my best friends growing up, he was Navajo uh-huh. and, um, we were able to click really well. And even my friends that I had 
that were white or American, I was able to click with them well too. But going through high school, I just, oh, these professors, I just, they would look at me and I could just see it in their eyes, just this like, like, I'm not going to focus on, on you. I'm not going to prioritize you because really I don't see you going anywhere. And to me, that was really heartbreaking. And there are lots of times in high school where I would just go home and cry and because I felt like I didn't belong there as well as just go home and just beat myself up because, again, I just felt like I was so out of place. I didn't feel like I belonged there. So I had a choice there. I could either choose to just fall into that stereotype that people already assumed of me, or I could choose to prove people wrong. And this is kind of like where my story begins is I chose to prove people wrong. So my entire high school, I ended up, I graduated with a 4.0, took several AP classes, and I finished, I believe, third in my class. Nice. So it wasn't valedictorian. My best friend actually ended up becoming valedictorian. Uh -huh. um, but I was just, I was finished third in, at Springville High School of a class of over 450 graduates. Yeah, if you're, uh, if you're, the valedictorian is chosen based on grades. And how, if you've got the same 4.0 as anybody else, how do they choose the, the valedictorian? So, <laughs> great question. This is actually a story, and I still am good friends with uh, my friend who was valedictorian. So, he will never admit to this, but he lied to me, and uh -huh. he took one more AP class than me. And because he took that one more AP class, uh -huh. they considered him um, one step higher. One step higher, yeah. <laughs> so that's how that's how I lost. <laughs> and then the girl who was salutatorian, so second, uh -huh. um, or historian, salutatorian, she also too just took one more AP class than uh -huh. than I did. So that's how that's what happens because here in Utah we don't weigh it. Right. Like in California, where you can have like a 5.0. Here, it's just 4.0 is the max, and then they'll look at your grades that you had in your AP classes. Right. But straight A's. And it wasn't until I graduated with those straight A's that I saw my professors. They actually shook my hand, and they actually respected me at that point. And from then on out, I was like, man, in order for me to prove myself, like I have to prove myself. It's not like where I can just walk in and people automatically respect me. Mm -hmm. So it's been kind of like this lifelong journey of just wanting to earn respect from people and having to prove to them. Because with me, I will respect you the second I meet you. I might not say too much, but it's because I'm kind of reading you. With sales and with boxing, you're reading people a lot. So at first, I might seem like a very serious person, but I'm just reading you. It doesn't mean I don't respect you. I do respect you. I'm just kind of getting a reading, a feeling for you. Um, but what's sad is, again, I feel like I always have to prove myself before anybody will respect me. And that even shows today. Um, so, again, just wanting to prove people wrong. And that starts starting in high school. And then ever since then, through my sales career, through these investments, I've always just wanted to prove people wrong. You use that. I mean, you could have gone down the road that so many others have and just said, well, they think I'm going to lose and I've, uh, and I'm a Brown guy. So that, yeah. that's an indication that I'm going to lose. Mm -hmm. And if they think I'm going to lose, then I'm going to lose. So let's lose. Right. You didn't do that. You probably know some people who did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, again, pardon interrupt, but one of the biggest things is my fear was that I would just stay in Springville as well. Uh huh. And the people that I know that still live in Springville, and this is no offense to them, but I just, they haven't done anything with their lives. They're just stuck there and they'll always be stuck there. That was one of my biggest fears living in Springville is because so many people did that. Uh huh. So the second I could get out, I got out. <laughs> nice. Mm -hmm. What's the difference between, um, you know, and I'm, I'm, well, let, let's, let's name the guy. You, What's the difference between you and maybe one of your buddies, white, black, or brown, or yellow, green, I don't care, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, who, who took the message, you're going to lose, and accepted it? Let's call his name Fred. Okay. So what's the difference between uh, your, your thinking and Fred's thinking? You probably have a person in mind yeah. that meets, meets that description. 100%. What's the difference between you and Fred? I think I think there's several factors. Uh huh. I think one of the first things are parents. Okay. For example, the friend that I'm thinking of, his parents really weren't there for him. 
Okay. They really weren't supportive in the things that he did. And when I would hang out with him, I, I hardly ever saw his parents. They were usually just at home alone. I was very blessed, in my opinion, to have both parents. Yes, my dad worked a nine to five job doing software. So he is the biggest geek ever. And he's been doing that his entire working career. Mm -hmm. My mom, in order to help um, bring that income, she would clean houses when we first got to Utah, when we first started here. So I didn't really see my parents a lot growing up because they were just both working and I'm not upset at that at all. In fact, I respect them for doing that and I appreciate that because they, because of their hard work, they were able to provide a future for me that is a million times better than whatever it could have been in Peru. Mm -hmm. um, but they were always supportive of me. If I wanted to try something new, it didn't matter what the cost was. Um, for example, when I wanted to learn how to play the drums, they we couldn't afford a drum set, we couldn't afford anything to do with drums, but I could get some drumsticks and some lessons. <laughs> lessons they, with drumsticks. Exactly. That is awesome. Exactly. That's all we could afford at the time. And so I started doing that. And then when they would see that I was enjoying it, when I would, they saw that, hey, he actually is pretty good at this. So I play the drums too. Um, then they would, even, they would work, and I love them for it, they would work extra hard so that way they could get me the thing that I needed next. So uh -huh. I know my... I know my parents for Christmas, they got, it was the only Christmas gift I got, which was totally fine. Um, they got me a drum kit. Nice. So that way I could practice at home instead of having to just go to my lessons and then just have to practice and then practice there. Uh -huh. um, but I know that for them that hurt financially a lot, but they saw that I was, that I was enjoying it and they wanted to be supportive of it. And that goes with everything, including soccer, football, um, chess, everything that I was involved in, they were always supportive of. My friend's parents weren't. They were hardly ever there. In fact, he would often come over to our house to eat dinner because we would actually eat dinner as a family. Dang. And um, which is something that I also really respect and love about my parents is that they would make the time to all sit together. So parents, I think having that structure at home was a critical part in, I think, what, makes, what made me and him so different. Uh -huh. um, that was one thing. And then two, I think it was also just the mindset as well while he wanted to go and just go play sports and have fun i was very much the one that's that was saying hey i need to finish my homework first before i can go and do anything fun uh-huh and that's because again my parents were very my parents they were kind but they were also very strict and by strict i mean school wise so they would always say get your homework done first and then you can go do whatever you want in high school i didn't have a curfew and that's because of the grades that I got. Right. And that's kind of how, that's how our system worked. My friend, on the other hand, he didn't have any sort of rules, no discipline whatsoever because his parents were always gone. So he could just kind of do whatever he wanted to. Were his parents gone because they were working or gone because they were playing bingo or what, what had gone? It was a mixture of both. Uh -huh. um, for example, the friend that I'm thinking of, the dad had a really big gambling problem. Uh -huh. So he would oftentimes leave to go outside of the state of Utah because in Utah you can't gamble. Right. So he would just travel for work. He'd call it work. Um, when I knew, and I'm pretty sure he knew too, that he was just off gambling all of their money that they had. Right. Um, so that was so that was something that was really hard for them. And and again, that's one of those key differences. Is yeah, I think just tying it all back, I think it all comes back to the parents and the people that I grew up um, around. So my parents and just growing up with people who, again, I was scared because I didn't want to become like them. So I tried to figure out, okay, what are they doing? I'm going to do the opposite of it uh -huh. if it was something that I didn't agree with. But then I would also try and surround myself with friends who were up there. So, for example, my friend that was the valedictorian, he, um, I would spend so much time with him because I wanted to be like him because he was very smart, very disciplined, very hardworking. Yeah. No. And I think this friend, I was kind of his only good influence. Uh-huh. Um, and then the rest of his friends were just kind of like him. Kind of like him, meaning? No rules, no discipline. Parents who necessarily just weren't there. So here you've got uh, valedictorian dude. 
and salutatorian female, you said, right? Mm -hmm. Where are they now? Uh, what about the, I hate to say that word salutatorian, that, that just twists, twists my tongue in half to say that. <laughs> um, what was, you, how much do you, yeah, runner up, let's do that. Um, what, tell me about her. So I actually didn't know her too well okay. um, in high school. And I'm not too sure what she's doing right now. All right, let's leave her off the table then. Okay. Let's just talk about uh, valedictorian dude. I'll call him Val. Yeah. <laughs> Keep my tongue from wearing out. Totally fine. So Val, uh, he he has the brains you do. Mm -hmm. He bigger brains, but <laughs> <laughs> he took one more advanced class. Uh huh. Um, we're we're he had the the lack of rules so. Mm -hmm. The brain power happens whether or not, well, that, even that's not true. I was going to say the brain power happens whether or not your parents are there. But no, mm -hmm. the parents are a huge factor. Massive. Right. His parents were always there, and his parents were strict, too. Where's he at now? So he right now is in the Marines. Okay. Mm -hmm. But because of his brains that he has, he was able to, to skip a couple, I don't know how the military works 100%, but he was able to jump up a couple classes, I think it's what it's called. Uh-huh. Um, just being not only an Eagle Scout, but also because of the brains that he had. Uh -huh. So right now he's working to become, uh, I think, a lieutenant, a commander, just, you know, because he, he plans to be in the Marine Corps his whole life, um, just wanting to serve our country that way. Yeah. And it's interesting that you bring him up and you want me to talk about him more because it kind of segues into to kind of like the choices that we make in life. Yes, go there. Because he was valedictorian. Mm -hmm. And again, I was third in class. Mm -hmm. We both went to BYU. I got my degree in chemistry. He was working for his mechanical engineering degree. He got married his first year at BYU. I didn't. <laughs> um, but he made choices along the way that cost him to um, not only be kicked out of BYU, but also have all these different problems because of just certain choices that he made that I won't go into, uh -huh. um, but just choices that he made. He made choices that got him farther away from the goal or farther away from what he wanted to be. Uh -huh. I tried to make choices that were always getting me one step closer. Right. So in a sense, if you look at it kind of like a straight line, I was going on this straight line. He was trying to go on this straight line, but because of the choices that he made, he started veering off more and more and more. And it wasn't until just recently that he's starting to come back to that line. Uh -huh. I think the Marine Corps for him was excellent in bringing him back to that line, but he still has a lot of work to do in that sense. He had his dark moment. That probably taught him something. 100%. You used the fact that, that people expected less of you mm -hmm. as a motivation for you to, to do more. Yeah. Would you say that was a blessing for you? Well, what would the white version of Enrique be looking like and, and doing right now? I think, I think I would probably be doing something very similar, and here's why. Okay. Because, yes, proving people wrong, huge, again, huge motivation for me. Uh-huh. But my, I guess, underlying motivation is just always wanting to be better each day just than who I was yesterday. Uh-huh. And that, to me has also helped me immensely in life because I also have this problem sometimes still uh -huh. where I see somebody and I'm like, man, he looks really successful. What do I need to do in order to, to kind of be like him? So I still oftentimes will fall into this comparison while I want to compare myself to people, uh -huh. which again, it can be good and healthy to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. But I know for me, there have been so many times in my life where I've taken it to the extreme. Yeah. When you compare yourself, you will always lose. You know, comparing yourself and then also when you do that, it's killing your self-esteem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think us men are all good at that. I, whenever I go into uh, neutral mode, and for us guys, that's a lot of the time. Yeah. My demons come and uh, they give me all kinds of evidence of why I'm a complete failure. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about you being a complete failure. Yep. That's... <laughs> Oh, well, I was like, well, hopefully you got a couple hours. <laughs> oh, man. I guess that's kind of where my life has been recently is just me feeling um, like a complete failure. And 
again, I think that started back in high school as well. Uh-huh. Is although I had this motivation, there is also there's also that dark side. I think I think every human being has some sort of dark side to them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's whether or not we can contain it. Define uh, contain. What do you mean contain? So, for example, what we were just talking about, how feeling like a complete failure. Uh-huh. There were so many times in high school that I just felt like a complete failure. If I didn't get 100% on that test, I felt like a complete failure. If I asked a girl out and we ended up not being boyfriend and girlfriend, I felt like a complete failure. If um, just silly things like that. And what I would do is, again, I would just curl up in a ball and just kind of cry on my own. And I don't think it's something that my parents even know. So if my parents are listening to this, sorry. Um, <laughs> but, and then just getting stuck with that. So when you don't contain it, not only does it reflect on you, but other people can see that. And what I noticed too, is that you start to treat other people like the saying, misery loves company. Right. When you're sad, it just drags people down. It's a lot harder for people who are happy to bring up a sad person than it is for a sad person to bring down a happy person. So that's kind of I what I mean that. by con- containing. So one of the things we often talk about in nearly every podcast is how when us men uh, have something crappy happen to us, yeah, we shove it in. It goes down the gut, into the stomach, somewhere into the intestines, somewhere, somewhere near the poop. Mm-hmm. And it just stays there and we just cram it down and cram some more down. And yeah. I don't love the word contain, but it's probably what you did because that's what all of us do. Mm-hmm. We shove it down and until there's no more room to shove, you know, right. it's like a trash compactor. Yeah. And then it just, blows and then, up. It, and then it blows up at the wrong time. Yep. And so I, I kind of love that you use the word contain, even though I hate the word mm-hmm. because containing is probably not the most healthy way of, managing it right when you did manage when you, when you did more than just shove it down was there a moment when you took those kind of feelings and dealt with them in some sort of a way successfully yes yeah, so so yes yeah, so although we were talking and i know you Garth, you're so kind you're always like you're so successful and um it almost felt like for me it came at a price so for example i was always hard on myself i remember in college too I was just super depressed because going, for me personally, going to BYU, I felt like an outcast again, Uh Um, just because I would walk throughout the entire campus and I wouldn't see any sort of Latinos on any posters whatsoever. It wasn't until I went to the BYU YSA that I kind of called them out for it. Uh And then a couple months later, they started having more diversity in their posters and their advertisements and everything. But again, just from an early age, I was always just super hard on myself and I just would struggle with honestly just depression, anxiety, and stress because I was always trying to prove a point. I was always wanting to be better than everyone else because I felt like I needed to. And that wasn't because of my parents, it was just because of me. It honestly just came down to me just wanting to be better than everybody else, which can be a bad thing. And for me, it was. It was Uh a bad thing at first. So going through that, just being super hard on myself and wanting to at times to even cause harm on myself because I felt like I wasn't doing good enough. I recently, so I recently got divorced. Um, I was only married for a year and a half. And, um, I remember when I was dating this person, I was absolutely, you know, I was head over heels. I was 23, 22 years old. So for Provo, Utah, that's pretty old. True. You know, because all my friends, all my roommates were, were married, and I was this 22, 23-year-old on campus, still single, and people would look at me like I was weird. You know, I started dating, and one of the pressures, too, was like, okay, like, I have to get married soon because everybody else is. And what happens, at least in Provo, or at least I feel like in BYU or in Utah in general, once you get to this older age, older age, older of age. like 22 and up, your social group becomes so much smaller. Because all your friends are getting married, you're f- and they'll only hang out with you if you're like married, because you don't want to go and just hang out with them because it's awkward. Or they start having kids, so then that means they have even less time to be able yeah, to. They're, they're in spend a different world. Exactly, that they're, they're in a different world. So, dated this individual. We we got married. We're married for a year and a half, and um, to me, I'm still like I still have to go to therapy for this. But at first, I felt like it was entirely my fault. 
Like the reason why um, she filed for divorce was because it was all my fault. I wasn't the person that she wanted me to be. And I was just so focused on work. And that was, that's where that containment, I think also comes into play. It's just, I was more focused on my work and being successful than I was in my own relationship. Mm -hmm. And after talking with therapy, like that wasn't the only thing, but it was definitely a factor in it. And I don't want to say it wasn't my fault at all because it was, mm -hmm. there definitely is a part that I think it takes two people. Right. For sure. But I remember when she, um, when she filed for it, I got into a really, really dark space. Um, I, I guess kind of like my story is she filed for it and I was just so depressed, so sad because I did, because I did actually care about her. And I was just super depressed that one day I just wrote, uh, we were separated, not divorced yet, but we were separated and I wrote a little letter and I left it on my, my bed. Um, cause I was living, I was just staying with my parents because I needed that emotional support. Right. So I remember one night I just couldn't go to sleep. It was like 12 or one. And I just decided, you know what? I'm done with this. Done with life. Don't want to do this anymore. Um, I don't like being here. I hate it here. If this is what life is, I don't want it. So I wrote a little letter. I left it on my bed. Um, it just, the only thing it said was, thank you guys for everything. And that was to my, that was addressing that to my parents. Mm -hmm. I love you guys. Um, and then I was, I was leaving. I have a toy golden doodle and he knows that when I open the garage door to not run out. And for some reason, when I opened that door, he immediately got right out in front of me and sat right in front of the door and he wouldn't move. And he listens to me, uh -huh. but he would not budge when I move. I had to go pick him up and he's a toy golden doodle. So he weighs 15 pounds, but, <laughs> but he would just not move. I had to go pick him up to, to get him out of the way. But I got in my car, drove up to Squaw Peak parked my car over a cliff just to a point where all I had to do was just lift my foot off the brake. It was in neutral and it would have just gone down and it would have looked like a total accident. My, my dad had a gun and I, I took that from him as well. And so I had that in the car and I was just so low, so depressed. And, um, I put the gun to my head and I pulled it. As you can tell, I'm still here. <laughs> yes. I say unfortunately because in the moment I thought how unfortunate that the safety was on. I had handled guns my whole life, um, just through scouting and through just you know what you know what I you know believe and so it was really at the moment it was really disappointing because I thought, man, I can't even do this one thing right because everything in my life was falling apart, and I was like, well. You know, taking my own life, I thought I could at least do that, and I couldn't even do that right. So I pulled the trigger, the safety was off, and I just remember just sitting there crying because I was just so sad that that didn't even work. What got me to go down from there was I called the suicide hotline while I was up there and talked to, I believe his name was Joe, for about an hour. Pretty much telling him how horrible my life was and how I just did all those things and it didn't work. And he just kind of talked me down to her where he convinced me to just go home and just go to bed. And um, I had turned my phone off. And by the time I turned it on, I had about 52 missed calls and about 100 text messages. Whoa. Mm -hmm. All from parents <laughs> and siblings. Uh-huh. Um, and... Uh, so I needed to figure out what, what to do. Uh, my parents ended up calling the suicide hotline as well. And so these individuals came to my parents' house and they sat down and talked with me. I really didn't get too much out of it. But what I did get out was that it seemed like my parents cared about me. And then it wasn't until I talked with my mom one-on-one. -on because -one, my mom, so my mother's mother, she passed away several years ago, but she was murdered in Peru. And the way that she was killed was very, very dark. And I won't go into that. Um, but it was her sister that was the one, my mom's sister that hired somebody to kill, uh, their mom. Oh, wow. Because in Peru, just people are so poor down there that they'll literally do anything. So my mom told me that, cause I, I would tell my mom like, look, you really wouldn't miss me if I was gone. I'm just, if anything, I'm just a burden to you guys. And she's like, look, when my mom passed away, like you might not have seen it, but 
I still cry at night because I would call her every single night. For me to not be able to call her every night has been the hardest thing ever. So don't you dare think for one minute that if you were gone, that I wouldn't be feeling the exact same thing for you. Like I'd want to be talking to you every night like I do. And so that was kind of an eye opener. And so I needed to figure out, and again, long answer to your question on how did you overcome this? Um, what I ended up doing is, yeah, getting help for sure. <laughs> so my parents helped me go into, um, just get some help through a therapist, which I still go to. And then also just having that family support every time that I have felt sad or just depressed, there always seems to be a friend or family that just knows and will text me or call me out of the blue. Um, and it wasn't until again, a couple months ago that, um, my divorce was finalized. Mm -hmm. And I remember all those emotions that I had came rushing back. I felt like I was finally in a good place. And then all of a sudden it came back and I realized that the things that I was doing before weren't working. So I needed to figure out something new because that exact same feeling of, I don't want to be here anymore. I hate being here. If this is life, I don't want it. I don't want it anymore. Coincidentally, one of my really good friends, his name is Tay. He is from Louisiana, black guy that I work with. One of honestly, my best friends, um, isn't a member of the church, but I, but honestly, he has more knowledge and I've grown closer to God through him uh -huh. because of just his knowledge and how open-minded he is. And he said, Hey, come to my kickboxing class. He didn't know that my papers had just come in, that my divorce was finalized. And I said, you know what? Sure. Cause in my head, I thought I either go to this class or I'm going to go kill myself again or mm -hmm. try to kill myself again. And hopefully this time I'll succeed. Right. This time I'll take the safety off. Exactly. This time <laughs> I'll make double check that to make sure it's off. And I love how we can just kind of, I know it's a serious thing, but I love being able to kind of like laugh about it because it helps me emotionally too. just know like it was stupid. Like, what was I thinking? But it was real in the moment. But now I can kind of look back at it and say like, you know, what? it happened, whatever. Or I think one of your angels actually put it back on without you noticing. Maybe. I still to this day do not know how that safety was still on. I call them your committee. It's yeah. <laughs> hundred percent. And, um, so I went to his kickboxing class and sorry if I get, I'm, I'm an emotional guy sometimes. So <laughs> be emotional, um, man. It doesn't cost yeah. me anything. Perfect. It doesn't cost you anything either. <laughs> Perfect. So I went to his kickboxing class, um, and I got punched in the face really hard. And that's what made me, I don't know. It was in a sense relieving. I felt so free after that punch. And that's what made me fall in love with, with boxing. I felt something when I got hit because this whole time from start of when this divorce was starting to the end of it, I couldn't feel anything. It's like I was numb to everything, but getting punched in the face, all of my feelings that I had came back. And although it hurt, I, I thought to myself, at least I'm feeling something. And then my coach, oh, now he's my coach. And now I have a full team, you know, for boxing. I'm in the USA Amateur Boxing League, um, four fights in, four fights won. Um, nice. Of course, you get your, your 4.0 in boxing, yeah, too. Exactly. Exactly. But he told me something that, and it was actually, excuse me, it was from my personal trainer several years ago that didn't make sense until that event happened. So her name is Crystal Gordon. Uh, she was my personal trainer um, in my early 20s. And she said, you know, I feel like, and she was an MMA fighter. Like she would just do MMA fights locally. And she told me, Enrique, I think everybody in their life deserves to get punched in the face physically. Deserves. Mm -hmm. And needs to be punched in the face. And I was like, well, that's weird. Why? And she said, because I feel like if we all knew what it felt like to get punched in the face, that we would all understand each other a lot better and we would be more compassionate towards one another and try and be kinder to one another if we all knew what it felt like to get punched in the face. And I'm guessing she said that because she knows that we're all getting punched in the face routinely. Exactly. Exactly. And my, so for me, my, my heavy punch to the face that took me down was was my horse and 
I didn't think I could get back up from it. And again, it still hasn't been too long um, since all these events happened, but every single day I've been able to get out of bed and not feel depressed, not feel as anxious. Stressed a little bit, but yeah, that's fine. It's good to feel stressed because it means you're alive. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but being able to just look at life and look forward to every single day now because now I train twice a day. I go exercise in the morning at 6 a.m. for a couple hours, work, and then I have my boxing training at night for two to three hours. So punching in the face and getting punched in the face are both therapeutic. 100%. I honestly would recommend anybody who is feeling super, super depressed, go to a boxing class, go to a jiu-jitsu class, go to an, a kickboxing class, whatever it is, go to something that involves your body and just get hit once. Here's why I think you're getting a 4.0 and being Enrique, and I got a 3 point, actually I got a 2.99. That was what I, I, I got out of uh, college. You know, I couldn't get a 3.0. <laughs> I ended up with a 2.99, and I'm like, yeah, that's that's my life. Yeah. Um, I had that moment a few months into my first marriage where I was like, this sucks. This yeah. is not working. I totally don't want to do this. Uh, there's nothing in it for me. She had decided that she was going to, in her words, make me her dad, and she hated her dad. So she was going to punish her dad by punishing me. And uh, that was apparently therapeutic for her. I didn't enjoy it so much. Who would? Yeah. Um, But I stuck with it long enough for, you know, for 18 years, long enough to have three kids. Mm -hmm. And then it was too much. And as I go back, I'm like, it would have been wise for me to have gotten the divorce six months in rather than 18 months or 18 years in because there were a lot more um, casualties after 18 years. And the only reason I didn't was because I didn't have the cojones to, to do it. So, yeah, I get that anybody who's going through a divorce, especially after a few months, is going to consider themselves to have lost. Yeah. At the same time, if it's a good decision, then it's a good decision. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I, I understand where you're coming from there. And you know that I had, you know, and I'm not, I don't necessarily want to repeat this story in every one of my podcasts, but yeah, I was actually planning my own suicide in that same canyon. Only I was going to do it on the main road and just drive into the river. It's a really great canyon, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what Pro was thinking, but. <laughs> Um, but you, uh, doing that on the Squaw Peak Road. Yeah, that was a better choice because there's a lot more verticality there. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm giving you a 4.0 for your, uh, your choice of, of how to die. <laughs> Man, that is really, really dark. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm sure there'll be any number of people that, uh, that want to crucify me for saying something like that. But bottom line for you and me is we didn't. Right. Uh, it didn't happen. And, um, from my point of view, my life could not be better. Yeah. Now that a number of things have changed. And I look at you and I see a light. As we look at you, we see a man who's got it, who we assume <laughs> erroneously always that uh, you've got zero issues and that life is just easy breezy for you. Oof. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I might put up a good front, but I mean, there are still. I mean, there are still those days where, again, those emotions just, they come rushing back thinking of what could I have done different? Like, what was wrong with me? What, why am I not this perfect human being? But at least now I know whenever those feelings come back, for me, I can go and hit the bag, get hit in the face, and you'll be like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> change your world. It'll change your world. It'll change. It changed how I viewed the world, too. Uh huh. Because now instead of comparing myself i kind of just think i wonder what that guy's going through that he's not showing and how can i help him you know it's also a metaphor i i'm just thinking this that you get punched in the face and Mm -hmm. and that sucked it was unpleasant Mm -hmm. but you're still alive you're still standing exactly you're still fighting exactly my nose might be crooked now but 
you know <laughs> no i'm looking no, really at your nose. like if you see it it's not straight it's like crooked yeah because of too many hits there <laughs> <laughs> yeah just just makes you more uh more sexy more rugged oh gosh i hope so <laughs> uh, uh what was your darkest of, uh, of all the stuff you told me about mm-hmm. and the stuff you haven't mm-hmm. what was your single darkest day I would have to say it was a tie between um, when my when my ex-wife texted me pretty much like a letter saying that she was going to file for divorce and that she didn't want to be with me anymore, uh-huh. as well as... Um, texted you. Nice. Yep. And then the second was when it was um, finalized. Uh-huh. And then I would say my third that just recently happened was um, when I received an email from an LDS bishop requesting a cancellation of sealing, mm-hmm. which for those that don't know, um, you know, in the LDS uh, religion, and um, a sealing is where we believe that instead of till death do you part, it's for the eternities. Forever. It's forever. And to me, the divorce, the earthly divorce was earthly divorce. It hurt a lot. But that one hurt a hell of a lot more. And that was recently. That had been a matter of weeks or months ago. Exactly. And those were all dark. Those are, I'd say those are tied for top three. Uh-huh. <laughs> tied for top three. And I, the way that I felt, I wouldn't wish it upon like my worst enemy. Because of how hard and how awful you feel as a, as a human. My next question doesn't work well with that one, but I'm going to roll with it anyway. Yeah, that's what, hey, boxing, roll with the punches. <laughs> <laughs> um, the question is, how did your worst, darkest moment become a blessing to you? And my first thought, I should just let you answer the question, but I want to buffer it for you because <laughs> that was a very recent dark moment and you haven't had time, I believe, for it to be a blessing for you. That said, I'm still going to ask the question. Yeah. You you pick one of those three moments, and if it was the the last one, then it's the last one. Mm-hmm. But how was it a blessing to you? So all three of them have been, including the most recent one, mm-hmm. and not in the sense that like, them not in the sense that oh I get to get away from her because it's like I still I still care about her I still love her as a person and it was more the blessing that came was I can now help people go like people who have gone through this I can now help them what I've kind of noticed in my life is I feel like I've had so many punches thrown in my life but I think it's because some higher being some higher power some karma in the universe wants me to be able to connect with people and help them and I think that's why for me, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's just so easy for me to talk to people uh-huh. is because I want to know like what they're, what they're going through and how I can help them. Because for me, it always, it always upset me when I would tell somebody what I'm going through and they're like, yeah, I've never been through that before, but I can, un- I feel, I feel for you. Mm-hmm. Cause I'm like, no, you don't, you don't know what I'm going through. Why, why would you even say that? It would upset me at first. But when I talk to people, like, for example, you, Garth, like, you've been through, you know, a divorce. And you've been through that. So when you told me, like, I understand how you're feeling, like, I actually can believe that. And I can connect with you on such a higher level. And so for me, it's been a blessing in the sense that now I can connect to more people. Now I can help more people because of the things that I've been through. I, I Like, for example, I now bring so many friends and so many people who are going through hard things. I just bring them boxing. I'm like, hey, all that anger that you're feeling, all that sadness that you're feeling, that you're feeling, let's go box and let's go punch the bag. And if you want to, you can punch me because I can take it. <laughs> <laughs> like, punch me in the face, I'll punch you in the face, and then tell me how you're feeling afterwards. And all the friends that I've taken since, they said that they said the same thing. They're like, I didn't realize what like pain was until like I got hit in the liver, right? I didn't know what pain was until I got punched in the face and like my brain was spinning. Uh-huh. They're like, but it felt like, I felt like I was me again. 
I love that analogy. I think you've sold a million guys on boxing and jujitsu. <laughs> I know. I really need to like, you know, get paid for this, but <laughs> no, I, you totally I do. love, I love the, I, yeah, I'm not in it for the money. I just want to be able to help people. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, and I believe, and I'm, I'm the same, um, I have the same set of beliefs that you do, at least the same religion, mm -hmm. but I believe that it's about who we create of ourselves. Yeah. Um, and to elaborate a little bit on that one, let's say I'm the guy who says that my job is going to Wendover and gambling. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm that guy and I'm spending money that the family needs for food. That's what I've created of myself today. Mm -hmm. That guy's not going to want to hang out with Jesus. He's going to be extremely uncomfortable. He's going to want to hang out in the place where you can go to Wendover and gamble. Mm -hmm. I think the guys who want to hang out with, with God, with Christ, are the ones who have um, learned how to serve mm -hmm. and who, are, who have a light like his. Mm -hmm. And who, when Christ says, come hang out with me, they're going, yeah, I want to do that. Yeah. Um, and so I can see now that you've described it that way, that, yeah, you've, you've taken all those beatings so that you can be that light, the lighthouse. I love the analogy of a lighthouse because it doesn't generate the light, but it, uh, reflects it. Yeah. And it makes a massive difference for, uh, you know, the, the ships that are out there. So you're the lighthouse. No, I'm, no, I really appreciate you saying that because I've always felt like the dark house. <laughs> <laughs> um, and even like, again, full disclosure, cause this is raw, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> raw, like, you know, full disclosure, raw, like, um, you know, I haven't, you know, gone to church in years and, um, I, I, I'm in a point right now, like spiritually where I'm like, is there a God? Is there like mm -hmm. a Jesus Christ? And, um, but whenever I get backed into a corner and somebody's just wailing on me, just wailing and everything starts to hurt. Those are the times where I feel like there has to be a God. Mm -hmm. There has to be. Because then immediately afterwards, I figure out a way to get out of it, whether I, you know, throw a punch in or whether I pivot out or push them out. Like, um, like there has to be, there has to be some sort of higher being. And I'm still trying to figure that out. And this is coming from a guy again, who was, I was raised in the LDS church, uh -huh. raised, served a mission, did everything that you were supposed to. Um, but just along the road, just kind of lost my faith in it. And what I'm trying to do now is I'm trying to trying to come back and just hearing again like just the words that you say like i feel something and i'm not 100 percent sure what it is i think i have an idea of what it is but i'm not the guy that just feels something and then lets it go if i feel something i'm gonna go and try and figure out what it was that made me feel that way right as well so thank you for well, saying that with with power that's you you're it came to you, you, you received it, you accepted it, you're dealing with it. It's yours. Don't, don't, I, I didn't do anything but sit here and yak. <laughs> um, let's put you in a DeLorean. Ooh, like Back to the Future DeLorean? Yes. yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what age are you going to go back to? You get to go visit yourself. And how many minutes are we giving you? Is it one, two, five? Are we going to spend a whole a whole day with that youngster? What age are you going to go back to? How long are you going to spend? And what are you going to tell that kid? I think I would only need like a minute. Okay. I would go back to, um, I would go back to, I think, 11-year-old me. Okay. And I would tell him, every choice you make starting now, it's going to affect you for the rest of your life. It's okay if you make some wrong choices, but always try your best to, to not only pick the good choices, but then the wrong choices, make them right. And the wrong choices make them right. How do you make a wrong choice, right? That's a good question. 
there's like I guess there's several different scenarios. So like let's say you hurt someone, you hurt someone's feelings, you hurt someone emotionally. What are you gonna do to make that right? <laughs> are you gonna apologize? Are you gonna make up? Give them something? Um, be there for them for the rest of their lives? Like how are you gonna make up for that mistake? Or if let's say you this wasn't me, but I'm just saying talking about an example. Like, let's say you took a drink when you were 16 or 18 years old, and now, you know, you're addicted to it. Uh-huh. What are you going to do in order to stop doing that? Or what are you going to do to make it right? Are you going to call, you know, AA? Are you going to go to AA meetings? Are you going to look for friends that will help you through that? Or are you just going to let it just continue and not do a single thing about it? Right. So making those wrong choices right. Here is one of the examples that proves I'm a jerk, and it's one of the most common ones that, uh, that my demons come to me with. <laughs> hey, we all have those. I was about your age, married, my wife at the time. Her favorite hobby was to complain about people and notice what they did wrong and what they yeah. did that wasn't enough or inadequate. She would never do anything because she was so used to complaining about the way other people did things that the last thing she was going to do is something because she she figured that everybody else would then complain about the way she did it. Mm -hmm. um, so I took one moment to be basically her mouthpiece. And it was in a church setting, and we were talking about something that had been said in a nicer way, but I restated it in a much darker way. Mm -hmm. um, and what it was is, it, you know, we, we were talking about the religion and sharing it and, and, uh, something that had been said in a much nicer way is if you, uh, believe about in sharing your religion, send your son on a mission, <laughs> he'll, he'll let you check that box. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> and so I said that in a much darker way in a church setting and I did it a couple of times and there was one lady in that Sunday school class, the only lady, who had a son on a mission. And she thought that I was actually blacklisting her. She came to me later and said, why do you hate me? I was like, I barely know you. I don't hate you. But I couldn't convince her that that was the truth. I was just repeating what my wife had said, and I was trying to gain a half a point with my wife by trying to agree with something that she had said so that it looked like we were a team. Mm -hmm. But now I was the jerk. You know, she, she'd said nothing out loud. I was the jerk. Oh, man. And, and that kind of stuff, um, you know, that's one of a thousand data points. Mm -hmm. But uh, that kind of stuff is what comes back to me. And as you talk about make it right, I can't make it right. I don't remember who that lady was that was 30 years ago in a different city. Mm -hmm. I have no idea where she lived. I can't make that right. And I can understand why, why, we th why you think that. Mm -hmm. um, because we're talking about a certain individual person and everything ties to that one person itself. Mm -hmm. To me, I think, I believe that there still is a way to make it right. If you don't know where that person is or have no idea who that person is, the way you make it right is by just never doing it again to anyone. Like, for example, um, I remember, I'm pretty sure in like junior high, I think is when it was, um, there is this, you know, it's, it's interesting because it's like I was bullied on in elementary school and then in junior high, like, there were some times where I was mean. And so there was this one kid that I, I, I thought he was gay. <laughs> um, so when people would ask my opinion on it, I would say, I think he is, but I don't know. But apparently it got to the point where he himself like went to the principal and was super sad and like, just was crying about it, crying about, you know, his feelings getting hurt because at the time he wasn't only, you know, 10, 20 years later, he comes out and he is, uh, but at that time it hurt him. And that's what matters right. is that it hurt his feelings in that time. And so I had to go to the principal's office and he, they told me like, look, you can't be saying this. Also, you need to go apologize to him. Uh -huh. Um, I talked to, I talked to him, but I never had the chance to apologize. 
because I thought, in my opinion, like, why do I need to apologize for my opinion? Like, this is what I see. Um, like, you know, why do I need to apologize for this? And I have no idea where he is. I don't, I can't find him on social media. But what I can do is never, like, just assume something of someone. And I can make it so I never hurt somebody's feelings in that sense um, ever again. Because who knows, there might come a day where, yeah, you might run into that individual. And if they, and if you do, great, like, go say sorry to them. But most of the time, like, we, we don't. We don't run into these people ever again because either we go our separate ways or they go our separate ways. But there's always a chance for us to make it right. And it's by just doing our best to never do it again. Because we're not perfect. That's my way of uh, coping with all that kind of stuff is I used to let it make me feel bad every time. Yeah. And uh, finally, my way of managing it is uh, is to say, yeah, that was sucked. That sucked. I was a jerk. Look how far I moved forward. Exactly. And the demons have uh, have relented a little bit based on that strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right. You can you can just choose to be light and move forward. Yeah. Um, I have a set of good friends who live not too far down the street. They have a daughter. It's what Thursday today. Yeah, she's getting married on Saturday. Ooh. Two days from now, <laughs> and she's twenty-one. She, <laughs> <laughs> uh, she might be twenty-two-ish. Yeah, she just just got off a mission herself, and then nice. found the right guy immediately for her. Hey, you know, for some people that that happens. Uh huh. It's again, like I just just and when I said that earlier, it's not to say that like if you're twenty, you can't get married. The U.S. average is thirty. Uh huh. Here in Utah, I'm pretty sure it's like 20. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's some people who just find the, the right person and it ends up working. That's not to say that none of them are going to work. But yeah. yeah, she she might be 22, 23 because she started later and then she had some some issues getting out there. But uh, she's, she's full of uh, wisdom. That's good. Uh, and one of the things she said, she told me, is when you run into somebody, you want to treat them like they are hurting because they probably are. That's really good. Uh, and as I run into guys, not only are they hurting, it's interesting because there's guys like you who are hurting and vulnerable. And then there's the guys who are close friends who are hurting and will not talk to me. Yeah. And, you know, one of them said, I'd, I, I could do the interview, you know, I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. That line. <laughs> um, and he knows, you know, he's hurting too much to talk. And so, yeah, we're all hurting. 100%. And I mean, if you don't mind me asking, is he like similar age to you, your friend? Same age. Yeah, I grew up with him. I think, too, just because, again, like I'm 25, uh-huh. um, you're probably 35. Yeah. <laughs> so- but we grew up in different generations, right? Yes. And even my parents, for the longest time, didn't think that like mental illness or like depression, anxiety was a thing until I showed them firsthand that, hey, it is. And I think it's just because of the way that y'all were raised. Mm-hmm. Now, in our world today, it's like we talk about depression and anxiety, I think, so much to the point where now we have medication for it, uh-huh. which, you know, that's a whole other topic that we could go into on another day. But um like it's just talked about so much and it's not looked down upon. Right. I feel like at least in my parents' generation, my dad, he's 59. In his generation, it was very much like we don't talk about like depression, anxiety. That's not a thing. Also, if you're going to go see like a psychologist, that means you're weird. Uh-huh. Like that's that's weird. Like you don't do that. That means you're like crazy in the head. And I still think that a lot of this older generation, that's kind of how they look at it. Totally. Yeah, we don't. Yeah, like uh-huh. again, I'm not... You know, I'm not as old as you. I'm not as wise as you. You're definitely wiser. (laughs) Not even, but it's just this whole generation, they've just been taught to suppress it. it. Yeah. Yeah. Rub some dirt on it. Yeah. And, and then when it's too much, then, uh, then go develop a, a close relationship with Jack Daniels. Yeah. Or heroin or beat your wife or put a gun to your head. None of those solutions work very well. None of them work, period. Yeah. So there's a better way. And uh, one of those better ways is to align yourself with a tribe. And that's what we're working on next. 
I like that tribe. Enrique, thank you. No, thank you for having me on here. This is the, I think this is the first time I've been able to just kind of be out in the open in like a public setting. So I appreciate it. And it's honestly, it's been relieving to me. It actually feels good. So thank you for giving me that chance to, I guess, feel good. Hey, thank you for listening to this Manalizing podcast. I appreciate it. You know, I don't go hunting for men with big stories and big issues to deal with. I find that pretty much any man that I talk to, he's going to have a story. If you're inspired by what you hear, here's my invitation. Join us. Join Manalizing. Manalizing.com. Lift and be lifted. Help other men and allow other men to help you. Let's do this together. We look forward to meeting you. Manalizing.com. Thank you.